appreciate the band uh, dressing up today for uh, Easter Sunday. She knows their ties. Uh, we welcome you here today. And if you're a guest and you have children in here, we're, we're glad that they are here. If you need to, we have a room back here. There's a big window back there, and that is called the crying baby's room. It doesn't, your child doesn't have to be crying to be in there. But if you need to go back there, there's a speaker. You can see everything that's going on. And we also now have it in our living room. We've got what's going on in here projected out there. So uh, if you need to go out there, please go. And if you got to go to the restroom, stuff like that, we know things happen. But we're going to ask you from now on to do us a favor. If you leave and you have to go to the restroom, just stay out there. Right? Don't come back in because that distracts other people. And God may want to speak to somebody and you sure don't want to distract someone from hearing God, right? Now, I need you to use your imaginations. We're going to imagine this guy. Put that picture up there, would you, Miriam? Who is that? Clark Kent. Now, he's otherwise known as Superman. Use your imaginations and let's say that Clark Kent, as Clark Kent, he's at home. And he wakes up one morning on the wrong side of the bed. Right? Because it probably happened. And he wakes up and without even thinking, he reaches over and turns off the alarm clock, slaps it so hard that it just crumbles in pieces and scatters about the room. He walks to breakfast. And uh, he has his insulated coffee mug. And he's just not happy with the temperature of the coffee. So he slams it down on the, the table and sends it through an inch of solid oak. He's reading his paper. And he, his favorite sports team has lost. And so he screams in such a way that it shatters Lois's eardrum and she falls to the floor next to the table. He stomps from the table down the hallway and he brushes Clark Jr., slamming him into the wall, cracking ribs and giving him a concussion. Goes and brushes his teeth, walks out, slams the front door so hard that it falls off his hinges. Clark Jr. leaves his bicycle in the middle of the sidewalk for the 9,000th time. So he goes and he kicks it and plants it 50 feet up in the neighbor's elm tree. Now, we think, how could Clark Kent do such a thing? Right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, right? And we think, how could he, how could he reap such destruction and not even realize he was hurting people? How could he go to work that day not realizing his wife is, is crying, his son is crying, the neighbors are crying because they don't want to be around him? How could he realize that he doesn't have the... How does he not know he has the power to destroy others? How could Clark Kent not get that? And, and see, where I want to go with this today is, dads, we have tremendous power for good in the lives of our children. But the really sad thing is we have just as much power for destruction in our children if we're not careful. We can build our children up. We can tap into their hearts and we can teach them to love. We can teach them to trust, to serve, to share, to give, to create. Or we can twist their fragile hearts so badly that, that they're never repaired for an entire lifetime. And what comes out is anger, abuse, neglect, contempt. Consequences that not only affect the rest of their lives, but they affect future generations. I want you to see, or listen to what Gary Smalley said. Gary Smalley is a relationship expert. He said, you don't have to be a pediatric heart surgeon to penetrate the chest cavity of a child. The heart of a little boy is already in his dad's hands. The heart of a little girl already lies exposed to her father's touch. A child's heart is easily bruised, easily torn, easily broken. And once seriously damaged, no team of surgeons in God's world can repair it. 
Only the Almighty Himself has the skill to restore its original balance, potential, and capacities. Now, it's not just the major abuses that leave lasting scars. It could be one anger-filled comment that scars a child for a lifetime. I read this letter. Larry said, When I was just five, my aunt came to visit us unexpectedly. This was my favorite aunt, particularly because the few times a year she came into town, she always brought me a present. And this visit was no exception. This time she gave me something I had longed for, a plastic ball and bat set. I rushed out to the garage where my father was and where he spent most of his free time. Daddy, daddy, I cried, showing him the ball and the bat. Would you come out and play ball with me? He'd been over the car adjusting the carburetor for the hundredth time. When he heard my question, he straightened up and gave me a long, piercing look that I've never forgotten to this day. Let's get something straight, he said. I'm your father, not your friend. Larry was 45 years old when he wrote this letter, and he still remembered that stinging rebuke from his father. Now, here's the good news. We can pierce our child's hearts. We can deform them, but we also have the power to do tremendous good as well. Positive memories can be just as lasting and be just as strongly impactful in the lives of of kids as negative ones. There was a woman named Sarah who after her father died, she was going through some of his belongings and uh, she opened his Bible and she came across a pressed rosebud and two ticket stubs and the memories came flooding back and here's what she wrote. I grew up in a poor family in the late 1940s. My father loved us very much and worked extremely hard to keep five kids in shoes and clothes. But still, most of our clothes were hand-me-downs from the missionary barrel at church. During high school, I struck gold with a wealthy family at church who needed a babysitter. I saved my money, and then one night I wrote up a special invitation to my father, asking if he would go out with me on a special date the next night. My father responded by picking up flowers on his way home from work, then brushing off and putting on his only nice suit, usually reserved for weddings or funerals. After all, he said, it's not often you get to go out with the bell of the ball. We went to the local restaurant and had hamburgers and a chocolate milkshake. Then we went to see a show, and we walked home arm in arm together. I'll never forget how he hugged me when we got home and told me how, pr- how he loved me, prayed for me, and he was so very proud of me. When Sarah found these ticket stubs in her father's Bible, it was 50 years after that special date. All it took was to see the flowers, the ticket stubs, to bring back a flood of powerful memories from her father. It was still very clear in her mind. And that image of her loving father who was proud of her, who prayed for her, who modeled integrity in front of her, carried her through the ups and downs of life, carried her through many storms, anchored her knowing that someone was proud of her. Dads, we have a job to do, and it's not just to spend time with our kids. We're supposed to encourage them, but we also have to teach them, boys and girls, what it is to be a real man. And I want to tell you four things today from the Scripture. This comes straight from the pages of Scripture about what it means to be a real man. First, a real man is not passive. Let me explain what I mean, and we're going to go to Scripture to get this. The first man was who? What was his name? Adam. Well, Genesis two sixteen and 17. But the Lord God gave him this warning. You may freely eat any fruit in the garden except fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. Now, in chapter 3, the serpent comes up and and begins to tempt Eve and, and says, If you will eat the forbidden fruit, 
You can become like God. And right here in chapter 3, right here is the moment. This is the defining moment for Adam. He could have been the man that God wanted him to be. He had the chance to intervene on behalf of his family. You see, if you think about this, God had given Adam three things. This is on your listening guide. He gave him a will to obey. Do not eat the fruit. God gave Adam a choice. God gives you a choice. He gives you a will. Are you going to follow your will? Are you going to follow God's will? God said you can have everything. Everything is good except this one. Do not eat this fruit. So that was the will to obey God's will. A work to do. He was given work to do before sin. He was supposed to cultivate the garden. You know. I was just talking to Alan, the, the fire department over by the high school. They have a big old garden. He said, man, that's a lot of work. Just imagine the Garden of Eden. This was a massive garden. God said, take care of it. Work is not bad. You're to cultivate the garden. And then the third thing he gave him was a woman to love. What was her name? Eve. Eve. God had given the command not to eat the fruit to Adam. When he gave him in, in Genesis chapter 2, Eve had not even been created yet. That comes a few verses later. When Adam realizes he doesn't have a suitable helper. It's the one time in the Garden of Eden. It's the one thing in the creation story that was not good. Adam was alone. So she wasn't even there when God gave the command to the man. He said, do not eat of the fruit. But at that moment, when he had the chance to step in, he became passive. And it cost him dearly. And and where was Adam when Eve was being tempted? I'll show you. Verse Chapter 3, verse 6. The woman was convinced... The fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband who was... He was where? He was with her. Then he did what? And do you know who God held responsible for the sin in the garden? It was not Eve. It was the man to whom he'd given... The command, do not eat of this fruit. He was passive when he should have been active. Or let's put it in our uh, language today. He was lazy when he should have stood up and protected his woman. He was indifferent when he had the opportunity to protect his family and make a difference in their lives. Is it a stretch to think that many men are like that today? When our families face crisis points... Do most men stand up and say, I will follow God and I will lead my family to follow God and I will defend my family with the power of God? Or do most men simply watch TV? Don't answer that, ladies. Now, I want you to contrast. Because this is Resurrection Sunday, I want you to contrast Adam. He's called the first Adam because <laughs> he was the first man, the first Adam with the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is named the second Adam. Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam failed miserably. He was passive, did not protect his family. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, refused to be passive. He stepped into eternity, stepped out of eternity into our time, became a man, became obedient, and he decided to defend us. Contrast that look what happened in in philippians chapter 2 verse 6 though he was god though jesus was god in heaven had existed from eternity he did not demand and cling to his rights as god and if you read the rest of that that passage in philippians it says that he became obedient he put on flesh and bones he became a real man he was sinless he became obedient unto death on the cross Why would he do that? Why would he give up the glories of heaven? It's because the first Adam failed. And every Adam, if you're a man, you're a a form of Adam. Every Adam since then has failed except Jesus Christ. The second Adam came to restore what we'd lost in the Garden of Eden. 
He gave up his rights as God to become human and confront problems that attacked families and destroyed them and led humans to hell. He did that so that you and I could become children of God, so we could be adopted into God's family. And we could have the same power of the resurrection to confront our problems that we face today. Does that make sense? Jesus was not passive, and he does not expect men to be passive. He expects us to step forward and lead. Second thing, a real man accepts responsibility. Now, I want you to contrast again the second Adam with the first Adam. Jesus was given three specific responsibilities. Compare this to the first Adam. Jesus was given a will to obey. Whose will was he supposed to obey? His father's. He said, I do nothing except what I see my father doing. My father is always at work. I am always at work doing what my father did. He obeyed his father's will. He never strayed from his father's will. Second, he was given a work to do. You know what Jesus said he came to do? Seek and to save that which was lost. Now, Jesus started the church, which is the spiritual family. But the spiritual family was started to reach other families, other people for Christ. The church is the one organization on the planet that was never developed for itself. When churches begin to weaken and die, they wither and die. Is when they look at themselves and say, we must do everything to meet my needs. It's all about me. And Jesus said, it's never been about you. It's been about the lost. Read what he did when he had 99 saved sheep. What did he do when one he found out one was missing? He went and he found the one. And we're supposed to leave here and go found, find the, the one that's missing. So he, he had a will to obey his fathers. He had a work to do, redeem the lost. And did you know Jesus even had a woman to love? And people are going, oh, it's the church. What is the church called? The bride of Christ. And he did everything. To protect his bride. And read Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 21. And see what Jesus did. He, he washed the bride, the church, with water through the word. The, the word is called water. And he washed her. Why? He said so that he might present her to himself. Radiant in beauty. Spotless. Without any blemish. Jesus died for her. And it's that Ephesians chapter 5 passage where he said, Husbands... You're supposed to love your wives like Christ loved his bride. And again, I've said this before. When we love our wives like Christ loved the church, submission is not an issue. Right, ladies? Can I get I know that's right, baby? Ladies, come on, help me out. Thank you. When we honor God by doing what we're supposed to do, our families, our nation are stronger for it. Right? What, what we desperately need is men to live out what they say they believe. This don't do as I do, do as I say do is garbage. Your children will do as you do and we're supposed to accept, accept responsibility. I read this years ago. I've never forgotten this story. It was, it was in The Catch of a Lifetime. The author describes a time that he and, and, and uh, that a young boy and his dad were about to fish. Now this was years ago and there was a bass fishing season. In New Hampshire. And they were at their lake house in New Hampshire. And it was 10 o'clock. Bass fishing season didn't start until midnight. And so the son was practicing his casting on, on the dock. And, and guess what happened? The rod doubled over. And, and the fight was glorious as he's reeling in what must be a monster fish. He pulls it up. And it is a massive bass. And he's thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? His dad lights a match, looks at his watch. And he said, son... It's two hours before bass season begins. And the son's like, well, so what? Nobody's around. Nobody's going to see. And his dad said, you got to throw it back. 
now. Forty years before this story was written is when this happened. And the, and the man said never again would he catch such a large fish. Never again would he see such a large fish. His dad would never see such a large fish. But what he did catch that day was a lesson in moral character. Here's what he said. For as his father taught him, ethics are simple matters of right and wrong. It's only the practice of ethics that are difficult. Do we do what is right when no one's looking? Do we refuse to cut corners? We would if we were taught to put the fish back when we were young. For we would have learned the truth. The decision to do right is a story we will proudly tell our friends and our grandchildren. Not about how we had the chance to beat the system and took it, but, but, but about how we did the right thing and we were forever strengthened. Men, when you do the right thing, regardless of the cost, especially when it's hard, your children notice and it strengthens them for the future. They also notice when you cut corners. They notice when you cheat and it weakens them. So when we model moral and spiritual truth, we set our children up for success in the future. And I, want to, I want you to see, now don't put this up just yet, I want you to see a picture of my greatest treasure outside of Janie Washburn. This is my greatest treasure. Slap that up there, Miriam. That picture. They don't look like that anymore, do they? I just happened to walk by... Um, Yesterday, and I saw this picture. And man, the memories came flooding back. And, uh, and I've really been, been struggling since I saw this picture about my failures as a dad. Um, I've prayed for my kids almost every day since they were born. Actually, for the nine months they were in the womb, we would pray and we'd have a boy and a girl name and we would pray for whichever one because uh, we didn't know until it came out, until the doctor said... Congratulations, it's a... We didn't know. And I've prayed for them, and I prayed that God would protect them from my weaknesses, protect them from my failures, and that He would take... If there's any good in me, God would take that, and He would mold and shape my children. Because um, my son desperately needs to pattern his life after Christ. And uh, my responsibility to my son is not over. But at 17, I have no control. He thinks I do. Yeah. But honestly, control isn't what I want. I want to influence my son to follow Jesus Christ. Because what I've tried to model for him, I want him to have the desire to obey Jesus, not me. I want him to know the value of hard work. I think I've taught him that one. Okay. And I want him to cling to the woman that God brings him. I want marriage to be a forever deal. My father has modeled that for me. They just had 67 years. A couple of days ago, they just celebrated 67 years of marriage. And I told you, my parents did a lot of things wrong. But one thing they got right was commitment. We will not leave for any reason. 67 years. If God leaves me on this planet, I intend to make 67 years with my wife, with my current wife. Just be clear on that. Um, and, and I desperately want my son to model those things. I want him to follow Jesus. I want him to obey Jesus. I want him to work hard because work is good. My father taught me to work hard. That's kind of why I'm insane about work. That's why, you know, 
Because my dad showed me, you work hard. And if nobody else would do it, get off your rear and do it. Don't complain about it. Go work. And my dad has, has stuck with my mom for 67 years. I want to model that for my children, but not just for my son. There's one. Where's the other one? Where's Rachel? Oh, hi, Rachel. My daughters, more than anything else, need to know what a godly man looks like. And I want my daughters to follow Jesus with all their hearts. And God is not going to waste a righteous woman on a sorry man who will not follow Christ. And I've told them, and I'm telling y'all, dudes, you want to date my daughters? There's an application process that will take you about five years to fill out and then another five years to prove your worth to me. And, and I say that partially in jest, but I've also told them, if the wrong man comes to pursue you, I will break you up. I, I just, I don't have any patience when it comes to that. So dudes, <laughs> you want to pursue my daughter, you better be the man that God wants you to be. And, and I'll offer you this. You want to pursue my daughter? First of all, you've got to come ask my permission anyway. But if you don't know how to be that man, I'll help you become that man. Because I can't trust my daughters to men who aren't following Christ. I've seen it. I see it all the time. I don't want to deal with that in my own family. Okay. Number three, a real man is courageous. Authentic men were designed to lead, not follow. If y'all hadn't seen that movie, Courageous, you need to see that movie, Courageous. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But there is one thing I want you to know. A man is responsible to Christ. Guys, <laughs> you will stand before your maker. Whether you know him or not, you will stand before your maker. And if you're a Christ follower, you will answer for the way you led your family or the way you abdicated the leadership role to your wife. The men are supposed to lead. And, and ladies, do you know why there are more ladies who come to church than there are men? It's because ladies take seriously the spiritual thing of following Christ more than men do. And it's, I think that's the weakness of our nation. Honestly, it's not which political party is in power. It's that men have abdicated the leadership role. Men are laying on the couch watching TV. Men are on the internet looking at stuff they don't need to be looking at. Men are engaging in things that they should never do. And our families are being destroyed while we sit on our butts. To me, that's just unacceptable. A real man is courageous. A, a man is responsible to Christ. A woman is responsible to her husband. Christ is responsible to God. Adam, when he had the opportunity to step forward, he gave up his leadership role. He refused uh, to follow God's word and lead his wife. And the reason there's chaos in our country is because men are doing the same things today. Here's on your listening guide. To lead with truth. And by the way, truth is not some concept, you know. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. So to lead with truth is to lead with Jesus Christ. To lead with truth rather than to surrender to feelings always separates men from boys. And guys, you know, I'm just trying to talk real straight to you today in case you hadn't noticed. We need a few more men. To step forward and accept responsibility and to be courageous. The night before his death, I want you to see what Jesus did. Jesus was praying. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. That's the hardest prayer to pray is, God, your will, not mine, be done. When my son leaves home, my prayer will be, God, your will be done in his life. It's not long, and it's a scary thing. I love my son, and I want him to be a man who follows Christ. And I'll I'll be honest with you, he's a better man today than I was at his age. Serving God and... And, and using his gifts. And he's not perfect. And I, I'm very aware of that. But he's already a better man than me. And I want him to, I want him to be better at 47 than I am at 47. And six, that's, there you go. Christianity is not for cowards. I get so sick of people saying that Christianity is a crutch for the weak. The weak do what everybody else do. Does. The weak do what everybody else does. Courageous men stand up and say, I don't care what you do. I will follow Christ if it costs me my life. Number four, a real man expects the greater reward. If you think about it, Jesus Jesus cried out to God and said, If it's possible, let this pass for me. He cried and he was in such agony that he sweat drops of blood. But at the end, he still said, not my will, but your will be done. And he willingly went to the cross. And if you think about it, I mean, honestly, wow, I don't want to go to a cross. I, I don't want to be nailed to a cross. Those things, have you all seen the people in the Philippines that literally get nailed to a cross to identify with Jesus? I ain't doing that. He went to the cross willingly. How could he do that? It's explained in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy. There it is. Because of the joy he knew he would, would be his afterwards. Now he is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. What, what kept Jesus going was he saw a greater reward on the other side of death. And men, we've got to look with an eternal perspective. You give up some of the things of this world so that you gain things in the next world and it benefits your children. His great reward awaited in heaven. And every man needs that if we're going to be successful. Because the world is going to offer our children all kinds of roads and they all lead to hell. And if I've read the scripture correctly, there is one road that leads to eternal success, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we've got to lead our children on that. We've got to spend our lives following that road and teaching our kids to follow that same road, which leads to eternal success. Um, many of you read the book To Kill a Mockingbird, and you've seen the movie, and, and we watched it as a family years ago. In the movie, Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch, who is an attorney in a small southern town. The story is about race and prejudice, but it also illustrates how a father's integrity impacts his family. And you see his integrity through the eyes of his children. Well, a black man, Tom Tom Robinson, is wrongly accused of raping a white woman. Atticus defends him, and of course, you can, you can imagine, this was years ago, this, this movie is in black and white, it's how long ago it was filmed. Um, and, and, It was not a popular decision, and he is mercilessly attacked. Uh, He's hounded by the bigoted white community. 
a white mob descends upon the jail at one point, they are going to hang Tom Robinson for, for a, a crime he did not commit. Atticus steps in front, offers his life. He says, you will not take this man unless you take me first. So the, the mob backs down. Well, what I want to show you is just a quick scene. It's about a minute long. And this is after the, the jury convicts the man of a crime he did not commit. And I want you to watch how people respond to Atticus as he leaves the courtroom. you to bow your heads for just a minute and I want to ask you some questions if you're a father I want you to ask yourself what do your children say when you pass by in this movie Atticus had won the admiration of this community because he stood up for what was right and it almost cost him his life and there they were honoring the man who who led with integrity so men, when your kids pass by, are they inspired by your character? Does your son say, I want to be like dad? How do you measure up, men? And let me just say this, it's never too late to begin. I tried to speak real harsh with you today, real honestly with you today, but my, my job is not to beat you down. My job is to inspire you to change and be the man that God wants you to be and the man that your family needs you to be. It is never too late to begin. So my challenge today is to dads who want to be more than they've been before. I want you to make a commitment that you're going to be a better dad than you've been in the past. And I was talking to someone this week and, and said something that came that I heard years ago. And it goes like this. It's, it's I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not who I'm going to be. But praise God, I'm not who I was. Man, I think that could be kind of a defining thing for us today. I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not who I'm going to be. But praise God, I'm not who I was. And from this day forward, I'm going to be a better man and a better father and a better husband. In a moment, guys, you're going to have an opportunity to, to uh, make that choice. But I want you to tell the Lord, if you want to do that right where you are, I want you to say, God, I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better man. Ladies... Do you want a husband like Jesus Christ? You want somebody to love you like Christ did? Here's, here's a little suggestion. Don't tell other people about it. Tell God about it. You'll not nag a man into being like Christ. But you can certainly pray. And God can change him. Single moms, I want you to pray that God will raise up 
godly male influences in the lives of your children. If you're a grandparent, oh, you have tremendous power to influence your grandkids. I'm going to challenge you to get on your knees and cry out to God. But I don't want you to stop with one prayer today. I want you to think about what, what the Bible says, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to his followers. And I want you to pray for that power in your grandchildren's lives, in your children's lives. The days are increasingly evil, and that means we've got to pray more and more. And I want to be real honest for just a minute. You can never be the man or woman of God unless you are a child of God. You can't be the, God, the man that God wants you to be. You can't be the woman that God wants you to be unless you are a child of God. And it's possible right now, according to God's word, it's possible that this moment you can be adopted into God's family. We say it real simply around here. We ask Jesus to forgive our sins and be the leader of our lives. So if you don't know for sure, if you're in the family of God, you just pray this prayer silently right where you are. God, I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and be the leader of my life. Now, if you just prayed that and it's the first time you've prayed that, would you just look up at me? See that? According to Scripture, when you pray that prayer, the Bible says you're adopted into God's family. You have a spiritual father in heaven who is the perfect father. And I know many of you here, you had issues with your dad. Actually, everybody here had issues with their dad, no matter how good your dad was. You have dad issues. But there is a perfect heavenly father who will never leave you, never forsake you, never turn his back on you. And if you prayed that prayer, then he adopted you into his family. And the Bible says that God will be a father to the fatherless. The Bible says that when you step into the kingdom of God, that the angels in heaven rejoice. And so there was a lot of rejoicing that just happened. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you'll ever be perfect in this world. But there are some things you need to do to grow spiritually. Just like you grow physically, you need to grow spiritually. And we want to help you at, at New Life. So in a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to write on the back of your card. You write if you prayed today. Now, here's how I want to finish today. If you are a, if you are a father... And you want to be God's type of man. I'm just going to ask you to stand. Still with heads bowed. Go ahead and stand right where you are. Father, you see the men who are standing. And I pray that you work in their hearts and their lives. I pray, God, that you bring someone alongside them to be closer than a brother who would love them enough to confront them when they're wrong, who would encourage them when times are difficult, who would pick them up when they fall, and who would commit to pray for them from this day forward and pray for their families, their wives if they're married, their future wives if they're not, but their children. And I pray, God, that you would help them see their kids as their most precious gift outside of their marriage.
Father, we know that the enemy wants to destroy families and he's doing it and he's being successful. And we just want to kind of draw a line in the sand today and say as a group of men, we want to be different. We don't want to be like others. We want to be like Christ. And so, God, this is a very difficult task. But you said you will give us the power as we obey you. So I pray for blessing in these men's lives for taking a stand for you. Gentlemen, you can be seated.